everybody, and welcome to a belated uh, weekend review episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am back in the United States from Europe. No more Europe for me, except for all the conversations we're about to have about Europe. And to help me with that is a very patient man. His name is Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello. We're about to get a lot more Europe, baby. Yeah, we are. And I say patient because Ryan uh, patiently waited for my computer to load Skype, I believe, seven times. It finally loaded. It finally loaded the call recorder. So now we can finally talk on the record. Otherwise, it was just going to be a very intimate 45-minute long chat. Yeah, I hope Skype's not an advertiser today, by the way. Uh, If they are, they should pay us better because they're not. Uh, Ryan, we've got a lot of games to get to. I said 45 minutes. We'll see if that ends up being the case. We do have Champions League coming up today since it is already Tuesday afternoon. So we're going to kind of run through some things, the bigger talking points from the weekend. As always, we're going to start in the Premier League because the Premier League is where controversy reigns supreme. And I'm going to say like fun controversy to talk about because it's mostly VAR, whereas some of the later topics, specifically some of the topics about Italy, less fun, Mm. uh, more so tragic and frustrating. So let's stay in the Premier League. Let's start with Everton 1, Tottenham 1, where VAR controversies abound. Fun-troversy. Can we invent that as a phrase? Yes, we absolutely can. And I like that one. (laughs) But it's like, is it fun at this point? Because with VAR, I started off defending it. I liked, I liked the technology. I like having the security of knowing that nothing would be missed. I was one of the people who kind of argued that the rules needed to be updated and that it wasn't necessarily necessarily VAR's fault, the way it was kind of being called and utilized, that like offside is offside, it's just calling it scientifically. This weekend, once again, I find myself sort of at a loss for how to explain what VAR is doing or why it's being used the way it is. This weekend, Tay-Tay, for me, was the tipping point of VAR. I've gone full yep. anti-VAR. No fun traversy. It's all controversy for me. Yeah, I just I just think, I actually did a big rant about this on Yahoo Sports on my column uh, on Monday. There's many, many problems with it, not uh, not least the inconsistency mm-hmm. that we're seeing with it. Let's take, for example, the Deli Ali handball, not a handball yes. in this game, which went to review, was reviewed for three minutes, which is a relatively long time to sit around for this game uh, and, uh, and wasn't called. But it, it got me thinking on a different day, if there were different people in that VAR room looking at those screens... That would have been called. And on different days, that kind of thing has been called. We've seen much harsher penalties given in Champions League finals, for example, for that kind of thing. And I think it's it's just VAR was viewed as this robot in the sky that would automatically fix everything and give us concrete answers, yes or no. And it hasn't done that. It's just passed responsibility from the team of officials on the field to a team of officials sitting down in some room many, many miles away. They're still fallible humans. They've just Mm -hmm. got a bit more technology. And I think this and several other decisions we'll probably talk about as well, and also the one with Roberto Firmino at Liverpool this weekend, just goes to show that this system isn't perfect, and I think it brings more negatives than positives. Yeah, because like the Dele Alli incident you mentioned. So like the hand is up, the corner comes in, it's in an unnatural position, it hits his hand, VAR shows that to be the case, and I'm assuming the argument is like, oh, he didn't mean to gain an advantage, he wasn't trying to put his hand there, he was trying to win the ball, he didn't have much time to react. And like maybe those are like that is the case, but then when you couple it with all of the other incidents from this game, it it, it ends up having me leaving me scratching my head. And I'm really glad that you said this was the tipping point for you, because we didn't like we knew some of the things we were going to talk about, but that was how I felt heading into this conversation. So I feel justified, like in feeling like very confused um, because like like Deli Ali's handball there, 
if that's given, that changes the way like the way the game goes, obviously, but also it then changes maybe the way it's going to be called. But then next week, if that happens again, it's a different interpretation. It's a different official, and maybe it's not called. And to your point, it seems like that sort of fluctuation and who's calling what and when has yet to really be sorted out or clearly explained. Yeah, definitely. It's, it seems like we're in the dark as much as fans are in the dark when they're at the stadium sitting there for three minutes wondering what on earth's going on. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just think like we shouldn't be too proud to admit this is this is a mistake, Taylor. That's why pencils have erasers. We should just get yeah. rid of this thing. I think I think from a from a product perspective, if I'm going to be cynical and use words like product, when I'm sitting there watching a game. I find it less pleasurable when there are breaks for VAR and when there are conversations about VAR and when I'm watching my Premier League highlight packages when 70% of it is VAR incidents. Yep. Uh, I understand they have to be talked about because they're con- controversial moments, but they're being created by this technology in many ways. And maybe I'm being old, an old fuddy-duddy hit, but I just liked it the way it was before before we had this. I'm somewhere in between because I I do not enjoy the prolonged stoppages. I don't enjoy the confusion about what's being called and when. But the thing I really find sort of still even confusing, I've said confusing already a lot in this show, and that's probably going to continue to happen, is, uh, for example, in this game, Martin Atkinson spent most of the game, uh, from my perspective, with one finger in his ear listening to VAR uh, officials telling him what was happening. And I contrast that. We're going to talk a bit more about the Bundesliga later on, but uh, we were in Germany, uh, Daryl and I and some other folks, uh, and we were there for Frankfurt's 5-1 win over Bayern Munich. Uh, in the opening minutes, in like the first 10 minutes, Frankfurt have a breakaway. Jerome Boateng brings the player down right at the top of the box. It's initially given as a penalty. VAR says, hey, you might want to check that a little bit. Referee runs over to the sidelines, watches the screen, comes back, determines the foul occurred outside of the box. Free kick is given, but because it's outside the box, it's now denial of a goal-scoring opportunity, red card issued. It happens in maybe two minutes, maybe three minutes, if that, but probably not even that long. But because the referee goes over, you sort of have this idea of like, okay, he's figuring it out for himself, and also because he runs 50 yards away from the incident, he's not surrounded by players who all want to have their say and talk about how that wasn't a foul or how it was a foul and how it should be a card or shouldn't be a card. And that slows the process down because he can't focus. And I just don't understand why the officials themselves aren't taking a look at these things. Because another one for me, uh, Richarlison's penalty shout, which to me was definitely a penalty. He basically does Davinson Sanchez, leaves him in the dust. Sanchez can't see the ball, sticks a foot out, trips Richarlison. Clear penalty in my mind. The issue, I think, is that Atkinson's view is screened by Sissoko. He Hmm. can't quite see it clearly. And right there is like the definitive perfect example of when to use VAR, that the referee can't see it clearly. He's missed an obvious infraction. VAR says, hey, you might want to take a look. If he runs over, he's going to see that contact. He's going to see the clip. It's going to be a penalty, but he doesn't take a look. They say, well, maybe, but maybe not, but it could have been, but maybe it wasn't, and and it leaves it sort of undecided for him to make the final call and i'm sure they say like yeah probably you can let the ruling on the field stand but if he didn't see what happened i don't understand how that can then stay as it is and to me that's another very obvious missed opportunity yeah and i think uh, we could say perhaps say a similar sentiment about the jeremina foul on coming son as well which wasn't mm-hmm. given as well but, but that's the the crux of the problem in the premier league i think is that the way they utilizing this te- technology differently from other countries is it 28 countries i believe that var is being used in right Right now and um, it's the premier league who've stipulated they don't want the referees to look at the screen which seems it seems so obvious for them to do that and i think one of the most important reasons they should do it is because of 
the, the referee is responsible for the decisions of the game. Yes. And he, he, by not looking at the screen, he's ceding that power to the people in the room miles away. And just yeah, taking, he's not taking their advice. It's not, oh, I think you should look at this. It's like, that's the decision. And okay, exactly. you saw that. Sorry to, sorry to jump in, but like, I, that's the other thing that kind of baffles me. I didn't use confusing, I used baffles. Uh, that like, like, you don't want VAR to re-officiate, re-referee the game. That was a stated objective with the Premier League. And yet, by having the referee stay where he is, put the finger in the ear, listen to the VAR officials, like, VAR is literally re-refereeing the game because yeah. they're changing or not changing what the referee has said, but it still goes to uh, a bunch of people watching computer screens who, you know, I, I like VAR. Again, I like it in theory, but when it does seem like suddenly it is being utilized to change the way the game is officiated, it makes me doubly, doubly head scratchy and and that extends to the the red card to Hyungmin Son as well uh, because it's an obviously a, a horrific injury to Andre Gomes uh, but that injury comes about because Song I think the argument would be is trying to make a professional foul is trying to slow down an attack he clips Andre Gomes and I think the foot goes underneath Gomes before there's contact with uh, Serge Aurier and it's an it's a really 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 bad injury it's a horrific injury mm. we won't talk too much about it other than to say that it's he's had surgery it was successful it seems like he will be on the mend but it's initially a yellow card and I think that's correct it's a, it's a reckless challenge by uh, uh, Son but it's not like malignant it's not dangerous it's not trying to inflict injury it's a yellow card and then what happens afterward is a horrific injury and then you're kind of going back and saying well in the moment it wasn't that bad but then when we look at the injury it is malicious so it is a red and i i just don't get how you can do that because you're essentially allowing a result after the fact to dictate what the call is going to be right and that's not what you're supposed to do i equate it with like if you and if you and i this is going to be dark if you and i are like roughhousing and then i end up like throwing you into a spike on purpose that's probably like i'm going to jail for murder but if you and i are roughhousing and you fall on the ground and they're like then a spike pops up and stabs you well then i'm going to jail for manslaughter <laughs> i'm not sure why i've gone a murderous route or why it has to be you i apologize ryan <laughs> but like but it just seems like you can't sort of retroactively say never mind that was horrible and his foot was facing the wrong way so it is a red you're you're kind of re-policing again and and it adds to further confusion from this game which a 90 minute game ended up being i think 17 hours long is the uh the final duration of this one i think it's still going now yeah it's uh the, the problem <laughs> I, 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 i'm gonna gloss over your spike analogy there because that was disturbing but the, the, the premier league gave an explanation afterwards that son's red card was for endangering the safety of a player which happened as a consequence of his initial challenge so you mm. it's kind of retroactive card giving it's i suppose you could argue that it's giving context to the foul a little bit but i agree with you i think it's no more than the yellow and i think that that's an that's another failing of var because i think if uh, admittedly the var people in that room they are human as well and they've seen what's happened and they're like they've they've, they've reacted the way they've reacted perhaps because of the severity of the injury mm-hmm. but i think they should have also said hey steady on that's not a red let's be fair about this and they they could have been the cool heads in that situation and they weren't i suppose they, they should have, and they weren't, because it was already an incredibly emotional situation. I did not see this live. I heard about it after the fact. So then when I watched uh, the extended highlights this morning, I got sort of nervous because I knew it was coming. I didn't really know when it happened in the game. I had chosen not to see any of the sort of match reports or anything. When it happens, watching all the different faces of both the players and the officials and the fans, it, it really made my stomach turn. And you could see the reaction from Serge Aurier, who has to be substituted. Mm. You could see Son's reaction where he's crying, head in hands. Even when he gets the red card, there's no protest. He's not... 
frustrated by what the official has done, he sort of is so upset by what has happened to the player that like it, it just seemed unnecessary in that moment to further compound what was already a tragedy. Worth noting, uh, Seamus Coleman, who himself had a, a horrific injury of this kind, went into the locker room after the game to console Son. And then it, it is also probably a positive that Andre Gomes will have a player in his camp who can kind of help him through this as he rehabilitates. But the red card just seemed unnecessary and really just sort of a like, well, this horrible thing happened and obviously someone's got to go for it. So it's going to be you. And I just, I don't quite agree with that one, even with how bad the injury was. Can I, can I just add one thing here? And this might be controversial. All this conversation has been about Son's red card and Son's reaction and how we should feel terribly sorry because he broke down. He's going to have to take a few weeks, obviously, before he can get back to full Mm -hmm. mental strength, one would imagine. But Son's not the victim here, is he? This it's, is true. It's, Go- it's Gomez who's, who's suffered the injury. I feel like less of the, the the talk about this has been about him and his reaction, which we should probably remember there. And by the way, did you go Gomez? Is that how you went with it? I mean, we always go up in the air about this one because he's Portuguese. So like the E-ish, I guess you're supposed to make Gomez or something like that. It's the same thing with like Rubenefsh is how you're supposed to say Ruben Neves, mm. uh, supposedly. But then other people will say that's not how you pronounce it. So I just I, try to I go somewhere in between. Ray Hudson, I'm sure, used to say Andre Gomes on the Being Sport commentary. <laughs> See, there we go. <laughs> I, you never know. And we, we, we do our best. And I would like to say that the officials are doing the same. But the other call from this game, and then maybe we'll move on from VAR, mm. except we still have to talk Liverpool. So we probably will not. The one that really confused me is at the very end, Davison Sanchez has a loose ball. He controls it loosely. It's in the middle of the field. He's uh, dispossessed by Richarlison. He doesn't know Richarlison is there, though. So Richarlison kind of like pokes the ball off of him. Davison Sanchez is making the movement to pass. Instead, he clips Richarlison, who has won the ball. That He's the last defender. Richarlison is in on goal. It's one-to-one. It's the end of the game. He has denied an, denied an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. That, in my opinion, should be a red card because it's not any different than what happened to Serge Aurier last week against uh, Liverpool. He goes to clear the ball. He doesn't know Sadio Mane is there. Maybe Sadio Mane positions himself uh, there. We had that conversation. You can go back and listen to that. But he clips Mane. Mane goes down. The penalty is given. And and it's supposed to, VAR again, it's supposed to eliminate that whole like, well, if it happens in the box, it's a foul. But if it happens at midfield, it's not a foul. You're not supposed to have that sort of Hmm. subjectivity to it anymore. If it's a foul, it's a foul. If it's a red card, it's a red card. And so how it is one week and isn't the next, again, it makes it a more frustrating thing than I think it needs to be because you're taking a thing that is scientific and robotic and you're having it interpreted by humans or not interpreted by humans, depending on the situation. And it just makes things all the more complicated and murky in a way or in a time that it was supposed to be a clarifying thing. Yeah, inconsistency reigns supreme here, doesn't it? And I'd say in terms of that being a red card, if Jerome Boateng's foul was a red Mm -hmm. card, then this is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we still need to talk about Liverpool uh, yeah. and their penalty shout and VAR there. We still need to talk a bit more about this game just from the standpoint of Pochettino and Marco Silva are both struggling, what happens next. But first, we should take a moment to talk about today's sponsor, our friends over at SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way for folks to go out and buy tickets to sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for all in one place. SeatGeek has the tickets. I like that <laughs> as a phrase very much. Yeah, SeatGeek, one of my favorite sites to use. I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always looking for tickets. In my inbox in Gmail, I've always got like a few tickets waiting for an event. And I've actually been looking this morning for tickets, Tay-Tay. I'm going to mm. go see the Vegas Golden Knights play the New York Rangers. Apparently, this is hockey. 
I've never seen <laughs> hockey before, but in December I'm going to go to Vegas and see this thing. And I'm looking on um, I'm looking on SeatGeek right now, and they've got this you know uh, traffic light style system uh, for the tickets. So if it's a good deal, it's like a ten out of ten rating. You got a green light. If it's an okay deal, you got the amber light, and you get a sort of a five out of ten. If it's red, don't buy those tickets, baby. And it's not uh, done by pricing; it's done by what they think is a fair deal. And I, I, I find that really helpful in buying my tickets, and I shall do so for this thing. Are you a hockey fan? Uh, so yes, somewhat. I, I enjoy hockey. I can't say that I'm like like a diehard root for root for the team every single week. But I, I like hockey. I like the physicality combined with you know the aspects that I like about soccer: the tactics, the goal scoring, line changes are fun. My question for you, Ryan, is why did you decide to start getting into hockey? Oh, I'm not. I, it wasn't my decision. I'm going to Vegas with a few people, and that happens to be a thing that's happening there when we're there. All right. I, I'm excited to see how you do with watching the puck. My wife loves, like, she likes sport. She loves violent sport is, is her thing. She, I think rugby is probably one that she prefers. She likes MMA. I don't really know what to make of that. Murder ball? Hockey, I, what's that? Murder ball? Yeah, yes, she's she's big on murder ball. Uh, that that that's one. She likes uh, Death Race two thousand. She likes uh, Roller Ball, where people get murdered. Uh, James <laughs> Con finds a way to survive, um, but she can't follow the puck. She struggles with that one. I think it's because she couldn't do it one time, and she decided I, I can't figure this out, so I'm done with it. So I want to see how you do with that. And then my other piece of advice for you in attending hockey is: it is a whole bunch of ice. It's colder than you expect it to be. So bring a sweater, even if you're going to Vegas. I was going to ask if the if the, if the air conditioning is mm-hmm. is very cool cool in there that's a good tip thank you very much i will take a take care of that one and yeah I'm, I'm, i think i'm looking forward to hockey is it harder to see the puck in person than on the tv i think it's easier and i, it I think once easier, you right? start to like once you start to get the hang of it you'll be able to do it you just got to relax a little bit and not get too anxious about it and, and it's not even so far as like the the 3d posters where you've got like, let your eyes go out of focus but then also focus them at the same time and you'll see the picture <laughs> it's more so just enjoy it and, and have a drink and you'll be fine um and uh if people want to maybe calm their anxiety about getting tickets uh they could do so knowing that SeatGeek has over fifty thousand five star reviews which means your ticket are guaranteed to be there. Ryan's not going to get tickets from some weird site show up and it turns out the game he bought uh, isn't actually happening or, or is for like a, a week after or a week later or, or is completely illegitimate. Instead, he's going to know those tickets are there so he can see the Golden Knights and uh, probably buy some merch as well because yeah. why not have a Golden Knight on your shirt? The tickets will not be printed on Cracker Bed and the other team will not be called the Spongos. Uh, definitely <laughs> will be legit tickets. And if you want to join me, at that mm-hmm. match. If you'd like to join me in Las Vegas that evening or go to any other event on SeatGeek, you can get $10 off if it's your first purchase. Go to SeatGeek, use the promo code TSS for $10 American off your first purchase. Can you imagine, Taylor? $10. Not even euros. Uh, I, I, get, I kept getting that question of euros or dollars when, when I was abroad. I enjoy not having to deal with that anymore. Instead, just $10 off with the promo code TSS. You know it's 10 you know it's not. Some decimal point moved around because it's confusing and euros are hard and uh, pretty money at the same time, which don't quite make sense. Who's asking this question? It's like every uh, like uh, card swipe would say, do you want to pay in euros or dollars? Uh. And I didn't quite get it because it seemed the same, but I'm sure I'm missing something and there will be economists out there laughing at me for my foolishness. But that's okay because I'm foolish. I think you're supposed to pay local currency so you don't get the foreign transaction fee. I could be wrong. There it is. I don't know. See, Ryan knows stuff. (laughs) And Ryan knows, once again, that the promo code is TSS for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode. Ryan, let's go back 
to VAR for just one more moment, Yay. then we'll move on to other things because we still have to talk uh, Liverpool's penalty shout. Uh, what, what do you make of this one? Or, excuse me, not penalty shout, but Liverpool's goal that was not meant to be. Mane plays the ball in for Firmino and... Seems like it's going to end up being a goal. Then it's called off due to offside. The VAR shows that he was, I believe, three millimeters offside with his armpit. That seems a bit too marginal for my liking. Yeah, so first thing I learned from this was that you can score with an armpit. I didn't know uh, that evidently. was legit because I thought it was maybe part of your arm. It's got arm in the, mm. wo- in the, in the word, but uh, who, who knew that? Um, but this was very controversial for a couple of reasons. First, uh, something you pointed out in our running order is that the flag went up for it. And it was yep. a very, very marginal call, which re- uh, assistant referees are supposed to leave for the computers, to, uh, whizzes to figure out in, in this uh, modern fangled mm-hmm. VAR days, aren't they? So that was odd. But also some controversy here. And Martin Atkinson related controversy because he was obviously related to the Tottenham game. He was at the center of the controversy for the Arsenal goal that wasn't mm-hmm. given last week against Crystal Palace. And here he is again. He was the VAR man in this one. Drawing the line um, for Firmino to be offside. The first one, he wasn't offside. The line was redrawn, mm-hmm. and his armpit was then offside. So then we've got questions about it's the interpretation of the technology. It's not a concrete yes or no, as we've established. And then I'm asking questions about, well, how thick is the line? How accurate is the mm-hmm. line here? What angle is the line being applied at? And even things like got me thinking about the frame, the frame that's being used. Let's say they're using a 24 yep. frames per second camera here. They might be using a 48, I don't know, but if it's 24... Like the actual process of kicking the ball might be over three to four frames, and that can change whether you're offside or not. So I think there's a lot of problems here. And when it's this tight, why not just give the attack the benefit of the doubt? I don't understand at all what happened here. And and I think this is where, like, I again going back to what I said previously, like if you want this to not be such an issue, you kind of have to change the offside rule because now we have it down to this millimeter science. So it's, it is going to be called back, except that the confounding issue here remains that the AR puts that flag up. So then the call on the field is offside. And like, I am not saying conspiracy. I'm not saying that it was this whole like design to, you know, screw over Liverpool or anything, but it did feel like then they were sort of working to justify the AR putting the flag in the air as opposed to saying like, oh no, this should have been given, but because the flag goes up because it's offside on the field, that's before the ball goes in the net. So you can't then overturn it and say, oh, never mind. It was a goal. So you almost have to try to find a way to justify it. Mm. And thus Firmino's armpit is suddenly onside, which is even more laughable because jokes about, you know, how are you going to score with an armpit aside? How are you going to score with an armpit? If I raise my arm above my head and knock it in with my armpit, that is always going to be called a handball. <laughs> like, there's no way. So, like, I just do not get how that can be, like, a determining factor here. And it just, it ends up with questions being asked and us having to figure things out in a way that isn't just reactionary. It's not just, oh, VAR stupid, technology's dumb. That doesn't make sense. Because we've had those moments when, when you look at the way VAR is supposed to be used and the way it's been explained to the referees, suddenly decisions make more sense, even if in the moment, you know, you're going to get the hot takes of that does not work. But here, 
even with the like the the benefit of review and analysis and hindsight, I still have my like have my doubts about it. And with that in mind, I just I I do feel like this was a tipping point for me. Of I either need the rules to be changed, or we need to really be clear about how we're using VAR. Otherwise, I'm just going to get increasingly annoyed that a thing that I really liked is now causing problems. Right, and I, I feel the same way. I'm not being a luddite. I'm not going to say, oh, it's just technology. Let's get rid of it. Let's go back to the olden days and we all work down coal mines. I, I'm. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Sorry, um, but <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think that I-, I understand that VAR can be refined. I understand that rules can be better. I, I understand that uh, you know it can be better implemented, and as people get more used to it, it will get better. But I just still think overall, when you look at it, I think we're better off without it. I think the game was more fun without it, and I don't. My my the principal reason for supporting it before it came in was. Because, you know, this is a high-stakes game, millions of pounds, dollars, euros at stake in every game. Decisions are huge turning points, and you should have the most accurate means possible to determine them. But I don't believe that VAR is the most accurate means possible in many circumstances, and we've seen that several times this weekend. So I, I just think it's no better off. It's just clouding the waters even further. Scrap it. Agreed, because the frame rate argument you made earlier is one that... I think is incredibly pertinent to this conversation with this specific goal that if if the ball leaves like a millimeter later or sooner it changes the way that camera angle is going to look and and I think that has to be factored in yeah. and I also think the other aspect of VR that's frustrating and this is my way of moving us on away from VAR is that there's lots of other stuff to talk about and I think maybe both Pochettino and Marco Silva are happy to have these controversies because it distracts <laughs> from the fact that Spurs are 11th in the table 13 points from 11 games Everton 17th in the table 11 points from 11 games so first of all we know that uh, the bottom half of the table fairly tight if uh two points celebrate or se- uh, let's try that one again if two points separate uh 11th from 17th but more to the point like these are two teams that we expected to be doing better to performing better to be in the top eight top six conversation instead 11th and 17th it begs the question how long do we expect both of these managers to stay uh in their current positions or ryan maybe if it's easier which one do we think is employed longer in- by their current clubs my instinct says both won't last the season, but I think that Pochettino lasts longer. Um, I agree. I think, well, obviously Spurs are in a bad way. Obviously something's rotten behind the scenes, and I hope that Amazon documentary shows us exactly what's going on because it's going to be intriguing if it does. Top, they haven't won away in the league in, what, 10 months now? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously playing well below the potential, and there's a few players who <laughs> don't feel like playing at all, <clears throat> Mr. Erickson. <clears throat> but also, I think that <laughs> Marco Silva, I think it's so disappointing what's going on at Everton. Everton, before the season started, maybe, you know, they're they're one of those perennial teams where you think they could break into the top four. They've got so much potential. And they strengthened so much this summer as well. I thought they brought in some great players, and I thought they're going to be fantastic here. This was nearly their sixth defeat in seven league games. They had a couple points, three points above the relegation zone. I think that Silva doesn't last as long as Pochettino because the situation is more urgent, because... If they start to lose, if they continue to lose points in the coming weeks, they're slipping into that relegation zone. So that means it's a more urgent situation for them. And looking at their next few games, Southampton, Norwich, Leicester, and Liverpool. If they don't take points from Southampton or Norwich, I think he's really in trouble because they're not taking any from Leicester and Liverpool. 
I genuinely agree with everything you said, so I won't uh, repeat it. Instead, I'll just add, we also know Daniel Levy is a very shrewd businessman. Mm. And Mauricio Pochettino, despite his struggles, you could look at that as like, well, they didn't didn't really invest the way they said they would. They didn't really strengthen the way they would. Players are there that don't want to be there. And so you can justify it a bit more. But more to the point, you can justify keeping him on because he will be an in-demand manager. Bayern Munich sacking Niko Kovac. There's a, an argument to be made that maybe they look short-term and then they try to find a long-term replacement. Pochettino could fit that bill. I haven't seen any rumors suggesting he will. But it's a way of saying that like, I think he will still be a very attractive manager for clubs who need a new manager at the end of the season. And to let him go to sack him and have to pay him off or maybe not pay him off if he gets a new gig, but you're still losing money because you could be compensated otherwise. I have a feeling that Spurs will hang on to Pochettino longer than Everton will hang on to Marco Silva. Yeah, they don't want to pay him off and Poch will be mad to leave and not get paid off. So there you Mm -hmm. go. I would throw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer into this conversation as well with Man United losing again this weekend, but I think we've discussed that previously. Given the kind of state of the club and all the work that needs to be done there, I think sacking him probably doesn't solve much, so I think he probably ends up staying longer than either of the two men we've been discussing, uh, although I don't know if that's necessarily the wisest decision either, but I think that's how it plays out. What if uh, instead of sacking Solskjaer, we just close down the club, Man United, just stop playing football, and we'll just carry on with our lives? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Just take him out for it. Even as a Man United fan right now, this is, this is, uh, it's not the most fun. And maybe, yeah, maybe just shut it down. You like, uh, you agree to be 17th. Uh, don't get relegated. And then you just rebuild it all. Just an uh, that's idea. Fine. That's just an totally idea. Maybe fair. they could like go play croquet instead or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think being uh, purchased by Saudi Arabia is going to help either. So that still is rumored. I don't know if that happens, but mm. if it does, I don't know how much that fixes things in the short term. Indeed. A club that don't need things fixed in the short term is Chelsea, who won away at Watford 2-0, Christian Pulisic scoring the second. Ryan, I think the obvious question here is, should we just go ahead and give Christian uh, Pulisic the Ballon d'Or right now? Well, yeah, if we're going to say that we're going to close Man United down, let's just agree that Christian Pulisic has won soccer and we just stop it all. All right, okay, I'm all, we're on the same page again. Okay, so we're, uh, he's won it all. He's won the soccer, uh, and and he's going to go to the World Cup by himself. What's also the other thing? <laughs> what I will say is, I I think it's it, with every week we're seeing Lampard's genius mm-hmm. sort of become more well perceived genius become more obvious because it's looking it more. Felt weird, it felt weird to say it, didn't it? It, it felt, felt weird to say to it because I don't want to say it, but I'm having to say it. Um, <laughs> but the, the decision to sort of gently ease him into this team that had us all panicked for many many weeks it seems like pretty inspired now doesn't it the way he's sort of it's been a duck to water since he's since he's established uh, himself four goals in eight days he's getting himself in all the right positions it were it not for ben foster who had an incredible mm. game in this one he would have what, got three or four goals in this one easy he might have even had another perfect hat trick by the look of it because yep. that um that headed chance he had what a save well done, Ben yeah. Foster. And Ben Foster, I mean, by the it, way, it was almost it, sorry to jump in. Almost getting the no, uh, the uh, equalizer at the end. It was Kepa's only save of the match was keeping Ben Foster's header out in like the next in, in injury time. Amazing stuff. Oh, speaking of an equalizer, you're right. I always do this. I forget that Watford did pull one back. So it did finish two, two to one. I think I said earlier it was two nil Chelsea. It was two to one. Mm. I apologize. Um, and, and you're right. That header from Christian Pulisic, uh, Ben Foster is a jerk and doesn't let him score a beautiful header, but it's the <laughs> almost the exact same thing as what Sadio Mane does for the winner for Liverpool. It's like the, directional away from goal header that he puts on frame it doesn't really have any business being on frame but somehow it is and that was that was great in that it was just a moment of like instinct and acrobatics whereas his actual goal i thought showed 
what he kind of brings to this Chelsea team and how he's getting more comfortable because it's a really smart run to stay goal side of his defender, but then sort of fake one way, go the other, gets goal side of another defender and is there for a calm finish. Daryl pointed out uh, to me when we watched this highlight uh, with dodgy Wi-Fi on a train in Germany that that's the sort of run that we have wanted to see him make. And he sometimes does, sometimes doesn't, but oftentimes, at least earlier in the season, wasn't getting in that position for the easy finish. He ended up making it harder for himself here really intelligent running allows him to have a really easy finish and I have to believe that's a thing that Frank Lampard is going to look back on as a sign of continued progress for a player who we were slightly nervous about previously but now it seems like has played his way into Lampard's good graces if not an automatic starter then at the very least a consistent minute getter yeah and definitely I don't I don't believe your point where you say that any German train could have dodgy Wi-Fi. They, I believe they all have the best Wi-Fi from from my stereotype in my head. But um, <laughs> I agree with all your points there. And also, I add that Tammy Abraham had a really amazing game here as well. That the, the way he chipped on to, from that amazing mm. Jorginho assist for the first goal, setting up Pulisic for the second as well. Um, this is looking like a very very sexy Chelsea team who are on a good run of form, save for that um, uh, that League Cup loss. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I, I found out something interesting this week. Tammy Abraham lives on my brother's street. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. I saw you tweet this. I want to know more, including if you ever found out if he gave out good Halloween candy. So uh, my, when I asked my brother this, he dismissively said, oh, English people don't do Halloween, which is kind of true. I was also curious about that. And I don't, I don't think I can imagine Tammy himself coming out to the gates to hand out full-size uh, Mars bars. But, you know, one can dream. But he did say, he did say that it's, uh, he found out, yeah, he only found out relatively recently that Tammy Abraham lives on his street. Um, he has eight cars on his driveway. And I asked him which ones. He said he didn't know, but they were supercars and they had blacked out windows because my brother doesn't yep. know about cars, apparently. And uh, <laughs> and uh, they were hit my, ne- my nephews were very excited to see him the other day before the international break uh, getting picked up to go to England duty. And this is something I learned that players get picked up to go to England duty, presumably in a giant car with a flashing neon sign that says this is the England duty pickup car. <laughs> and so, so there you go. Players don't have to drive themselves when they go on England duty. I found out a fun fact from this uh, from this slight humble brag. Um, I, I I don't think it was a humble brag at all. I think it was an informative uh, session <laughs> in which you shared knowledge. So thank you, Ryan. Uh, but is is I want to go back to Halloween for a moment. Uh, as you said, I, I, like most British people, it seems do not celebrate Halloween, or at least not to the like level degree that uh, Americans do. Is that one of the more curious traditions? Do you think for Brits looking over to the United States, aside from electing laughable p- people to public office, you all do that too? So I guess you're used to it. Um, but like, yeah, in terms of American <laughs> traditions, is Halloween near the top? Oh yeah, the, the big three that the, the British find bizarre about Americans is a. Uh, Electing completely unfit people, mm-hmm. um, the really big uh, gap in the toilet stall in public restrooms where you can yep. see someone on the toilet, and uh-huh. uh, yeah, and Halloween. That's that's the big three. Um, I, I also, all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm always- I, I have to talk about that for a moment. That that was the revelation of Germany, which could not exist here in the United States. But the way Germans do bathrooms, first of all. They do them in a way that implies that the entire nation's economy is predicated on the number of doors built every year because so many doors, so many doors. Like you have the the door to go into the bathroom. Then there's like a weird like waiting area and another door you go into that one. 
And that sometimes like forks into another one, which forks into two more. And it's this weird like cup game where they multiply and suddenly it's Fantasia. But then you go into the like where the room where the actual stalls are. And you're right. They go to the door. They make you feel not just like secure that you're not going to have, you know, like a zombie come crawling underneath the door, which is a genuine concern of mine at times. Uh, but also that like, yeah, you, you got privacy. You've got your own little space. It's quite nice. It's quite private. Yeah. Well done, Germany. Get it together, America. It's literally only America where you have a giant inch wide gap in all of the stalls that you can make eye contact with people while they're getting on with their business it's very disturbing but i will say in the uk it's law in a restaurant that you have to have two doors between the toilet and like the restaurants you have to have one door and then a second door like to separate them there's a there it is there it is well well done europe on that one uh well done us for talking about the premier league and only spending most of it talking about var (laughs) and well done to today's sponsor for making cooking and eating delicious food all the easier because today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit uh, delivery service. You can get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you have to do is cook, eat, and enjoy. Ryan, we haven't talked too much about your culinary habits or skills or styles. Do you tend to cook? And if so, what are you cooking and how long does it take? Um, no, not very long because I don't and I can't remember the other part of the question, but I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed at how little I cook. Every New Year's, my resolution is to, I'm going to cook at least one or two meals a week, and I'm going to cook something new. It's going to be amazing. And then it gets to five o'clock every day, and I'm like, I'm still working, and I haven't had a chance to start dinner. So I'm, I'm ashamed. And things like HelloFresh are very, very, very helpful in that because it simplifies everything. No going to the supermarket. And I found out Americans don't use the word supermarket recently as well. And no going to the, what do you call it, store uh, oh, the grocery? <laughs> grocery. The grocery shopper to, uh, to get your ingredients. <laughs> Hello Fresh <laughs> makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, mm. regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. And my comfort is relatively little, as we've uh, established. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. That is exactly what I need, Tay-Tay. It is really, really nice because I have been in the similar boat as you. I don't have children. I imagine that compounds the issue of having time to cook things. But like, I will have those moments where it's like, okay, I've got a little bit of time before I'm going to go play soccer. I've got to go out to do something. I want to make some food. And then I'll look around. And I'm like, ah, oh, there's like one tomato and there's one this. And I don't know. I'm going to combine that. I'll just boil a bunch of pasta. And I don't know if you know this or not, Ryan, but uh, a just whole vat of pasta, not particularly healthy and not particularly great. Mm. Um and I have experienced the moments of having HelloFresh, and because it is 30 minutes, because it all comes together quickly, you've got step-by-step recipes, you've got pictures to help you along, you can do it really quickly, and then you have that satisfaction of, like, when you're talking to your friend who did, in fact, eat an entire vat of pasta, and you're like, oh, no, I just had, like, delicious fresh vegetables and a well-cooked protein. You, you get that air of superiority as well that everybody wants and needs. Mmm, smugness. Nothing better than that, huh? <laughs> uh, well, HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kits. So you know you get something delicious, and there's something for everyone from family recipes to calorie smart and vegetarian and mm-hmm. a giant vat of pasta. No, that's not on here. And fun nah. menu series like Hall of Fame <laughs> and Craft Burgers. Delicious. And then you can add extra meals to your weekly order, which allows you to be flexible. So if you know you want to throw some meals together like quickly and easily for your family, more so than you would like the, the week, week after when you're out of town, then you can kind of change the order. It allows you to be flexible. And for a limited time only, you can get nine free meals uh, free with HelloFresh. I think I said free meals free, but you get what I'm saying. With HelloFresh, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash TSS9 and enter TSS9. That's the letters TSS and then the number nine 
to get nine free meals with HelloFresh. Ryan, one more time, what was that uh, What was that code? How does it work? I believe you go to HelloFresh.com on your intertubes. Sorry, HelloFresh.com slash TSS9. HelloFresh.com slash TSS9 on your internet machines and enter TSS9. You get yourself a big number nine up front, which is what we like on this show. It certainly is. So thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, thank you to Ryan for not being good in the kitchen, which uh, allowed us to discuss all the benefits can of I just say, um Can I just say what I had for lunch yesterday? You certainly can. Birthday cake. That a boy. That a boy. It's got, I think it's got mostly protein and vitamin C, right? That's it, how birthday it, cake it works. It covers all the major food groups. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty nutritious. It was my birthday on Sunday, and um, I didn't have any food in the house, so it was birthday cake. So I wish I had a HelloFresh then, I'll tell you what. Uh, I think my mom used to claim that if you ate pie or cake the morning after you had it, it did, it, it counted as half the calories. That's how it works. Cause it's not real food. It's just breakfast. Well, if you eat half as much, that's true, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Okay. I'm glad we figured <laughs> out the science. I'm glad we've talked about the Premier League. We should add Liverpool, Man City, both finding ways to win at the death. Uh, your, your acquaintance, uh, Sam, who was on the trip, uh, in Germany was very, very excited. He's a Villa fan. Mm. He was pumped when they were up 1-0. Slightly devastated when they uh, fell 2-1, to one. but we're not going to talk too much more about the Premier League because he, Sam, and uh, me, Taylor, and Daryl were still sort of more so confused by what we saw in Germany than what happened uh, in Man City or Liverpool because we were there for Frankfurt beating Bayern Munich 5-1. to one. The question heading into that game was what would happen if Niko Kovac did not perform well, if his side didn't get a result. The... Uh, the answer we heard from most German experts who were with us was, uh, if this doesn't go very well, they'll probably give him Der Klassiker, which is next weekend, Dortmund v. Bayern. Uh, I forget who's at home, so it might be Bayern v. Dortmund, but either way, the consensus opinion was he'll get that game. If that doesn't go well, then they'll probably sack him. Instead, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, he announces he has resigned. Worth noting that I believe it was the exact same language used as when Carlo Ancelotti resigned. So that's a little bit confusing, maybe implying that he knew the writing was on the wall. He chose to offer his resignation. That resignation was very much accepted. But it then leads to the question, Ryan, where do Byron go from here? And I'm wondering if you have thoughts. Oh, I've got thoughts, Taylor. But I'd okay. just pour some out for Kovac, who's a uh, buying mm-hmm. grid died was born and died at frankfurt basically obviously his uh, yep. previous side who uh, he got the gig with bayern when his eintracht frankfurt side beat them in the german cup mm-hmm. and uh, not a fun revisit for him but are you, are you asking me who, who i think is going to be the next manager well, well, well we can let's stay there for a moment because like that was you, you're correct that he wins the dfp pokal with uh frankfurt over bayern munich but he had been uh, i think like named as the manager apparent at that point or maybe mm. had already agreed to terms um and and even then it felt slightly confusing because even though he's a former bayern player uh kovac even though he had won the dfp pokal had gotten frankfurt playing very well you look at some of the players that like or, uh, managers they'd had previously, and he really was not on that level. You've got Guardiola, you've got Ancelotti, who himself didn't have much success, but you know, so be it. He still is that high-profile manager that can command uh, respect in the locker room. There's Van Hall, like there's just so many big names there. And then you look at Niko Kovac, and it never seemed like he was going to have the presence and the reputation to command the locker room, and yeah. that. Seems to have been the case that you, in this game, even after, even with the red card to Boateng, there was just confusion. You could see players didn't quite know what was being asked of them. And the really damning thing was that Bayern didn't really change their approach until after they went like 2-0 down, that they still kind of thought like, ah, we're Bayern Munich. We're going to have the ball. We're going to move it. They didn't really adjust to be more defensive. They kept almost a like 
4-2-3 sort of shape and like kept forwards high up. They I think they expected to have a lot of possession. And when that wasn't the case, they really struggled to adapt. And it just seemed like Niko Kovac from start to finish never really had the backing of the locker room to find a way to get the results that he would have needed to get. Yeah, I think it was it was, seemed to be always against him. You hear reports of the players not liking the tactics that he was, well, alleged tactics that he was uh, put, putting upon them. Obviously, the uh, fans are unhappy with the sort of style of play they were seeing. And there are a lot of issues with this Bayern team. I mean, I think there's an inst- there's a good case to be made that, that they rely on Lewandowski a bit too much, a bit like mm-hmm. Me- he's their Messi, I suppose, in that respect. This this team has been hemorrhaging goals at the back as well, hasn't it? I think it's yep. at least two per game since that Tottenham game, which has been, you know, that was a fine performance. But in general, this team isn't moving the ball very well. They're not creating. I, maybe you've got a perspective on this seeing it live, but it seems like, they don't create as many passing options. Like they're, no. they're having a lot of the players are having to take risks because there's so little movement. Does that does that make sense? Are you seeing that? It, it absolutely does. Uh, because even the goal that they score uh, to pull one back is Robert Lewandowski essentially just being brilliant. Like he cuts one way, yeah. he or he shapes one way, he cuts back the other. He beats like four or five Frankfurt players. He makes the goal himself. And I, and I think that that is sort of like the good aspect of Bayern Munich and the bad aspect right there, that they've got this world-class striker. But at least in this game, it seemed like maybe Lewandowski will figure it out. Seemed to be their game plan. And aside from him, you didn't have a lot of movement. You didn't have numbers where you needed them and overloads where you needed them. Mm. Instead, you had like uh, Thomas Muller sometimes staying high, but then sometimes dropping wide, but then sometimes dropping centrally. And there just did not seem to be any sort of coherent plan in place from an attacking standpoint. And then to your point, from a defensive standpoint either. And this is a team that last season we thought Jerome Boateng was completely done. That there was like every like all the articles were about like oh man did so many teams luck out when they chose not to sign him and yet here we are with him starting and mm. conceding uh, the free kick getting that red card those things happen but it, it it speaks to a larger point that they haven't really like really retooled found a way to get in those big name players to get back to where they were last season or the season before. Um, and now they're going to need to to reestablish their dominance with a new manager in place. I doubt Japankis comes out of retirement. That seems a bit of an ask, even though that's already happened once or twice. Yeah. Uh, and he is wildly successful. He's another manager I should add to the list of people. He's who wildly old as well. Room. There is that. So that leaves, I think uh, I read this morning, uh, courtesy of Raphael Honigstein, the two most likely candidates are uh, ex-RB Leipzig boss slash director Ralph Rangnick, and then IX coach Eric Ten Hag. Uh, Rangnick would have to get his way out of, like, 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 basically it seems like he's been linked with a bunch of Premier League jobs and maybe has had his head turned by some of the opportunities that could be there. Uh, so IX coach uh, Eric Ten Hag makes more sense. That was the consensus opinion of the journalist. I asked when we were in Germany that he would be the one to go. I think Mark Overmars, who's uh, an, uh, an officer at IX, I forget what his exact uh, title is, but he came out and said, like, yeah, we won't stand in his way if he wants to go to Bayern Munich. So right there, that maybe tells you that that's who's going to be coming in. But does he have the the personality and the big game management? Like, he had it at IX, but IX and Bayern Munich are two very different animals. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Bayern find themselves in a very confusing situation, and now we've uh, said the word confusing. Confusing again. Baffling, baffling. Mm-hmm. I think Bayern um, have got to be careful. They've already had experience with a bald fraud in the, in the past few years. <laughs> Eric Hentag's, you know, another one. It's dangerous. Uh, I, I, does, do we know if he speaks German? 
I don't know. Because that's, that's, uh, that's supposed to have been a, a big concern, or a big concern with Ancelotti, mm. and something they aspire to in the next appointment. But obviously, in the UK press, there's a lot of talk about the, the aforementioned Ranić and Hentag coming in, but also little old Jose Mourinho, who's available for business right now, uh, or uh, not doing a betting um, commercials for other podcasts, but he, apparently he wants to get back into soccer as well. Um, but he doesn't speak German. I believe I heard he might be um, learning German. But mm. also it, it struck me that his sort of pragmatic style might be quite good for Bayern Munich. And he's the yeah. sort of player, per, a manager, who could get the best out of uh, the kind of players they have. And the only other name that I thought was interesting in the list is Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger's yeah. name has come up. I think presumably because he has lots of experience with big Bayern Munich wins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's exactly what they're looking for. Again, I think Wenger is 70 as well, so yeah. that would be uh, an interesting ask. What do you think uh, about Mourinho, points, a, a couple points to follow up on. Uh, yeah. Mourinho is learning German. I don't know if Eric Ten Hag is brushing up, but he did manage uh, – I checked his Wikipedia page just to make sure uh, – did manage Bayern Munich 2 uh, from 2013 to 2015 before moving to Utrecht and then moving to Ajax. Oh, so okay. presumably has a little bit of background uh, with German. I, I, I take your point, though, about Jose Mourinho. It's, it's the big club that he probably wants to be at. They need someone to come in and organize that defense. That makes sense. But I think there were – like when they were linked, uh, when Byron were linked with Domenico Tedesco and even with Julian Nagelsmann, Nagelsmann maybe took himself out of the running saying he was too young, but the concern about Tedesco was he was too defensive and then obviously Schalke imploded. So there are other concerns there. But if you bring in Mourinho to like shore up the defense and then all he does is play defensive soccer and it's counterattacking and, you know, the style we've come to expect from him, that feels like a thing that sours very quickly. And then they want another attacking coach. And maybe that's what we're just going to have is Bayern Munich fluctuating back and forth between too defensive and then too attacking. Oh, how fun would that be? How fun would that be? I think, hasn't um, Mourinho, didn't he say something rude about the Bundesliga when Pep was there? Almost certainly. I think he, I think I remember him being rude about it. So maybe you have to backtrack on those comments if he does take the gig. All right. Uh, this was this was a weird weekend uh, with like vacancies in mind because we had the VAR controversies. And then I really think you could make a compelling argument that like nine different coaches could potentially be on the hot seat. We've already mm. talked about a few of them. Uh, Niko Kovac no longer on the hot seat because he doesn't have a seat to sit on. But if we move to La Liga... It, it was another strange weekend where you have Real Madrid drawing nil-nil. You have Barcelona Barcelona losing 3-1 to one, uh, away at Levante. Madrid drawing home to Real Batiste nil-nil. And yet, you still have Barcelona on top of the table, Real Madrid uh, in second. So even with some negative results, both teams still in okay position, but both managers still not inspiring so much confidence. Valverde especially has, I, I think I would say, like had similar complaints to what we've heard about Kovac at Bayern Munich, that there's questions about his big game mentality, about his individual management, about how he gets certain players to play certain ways and how he brings about more creativity and incorporates that into the squad. Mm. Uh, and with all that said, I went back and looked, and Bayern and Real Madrid are both better off than they were uh, at this point last season. Through 11 games, Barcelona have 22 points, Real Madrid have 22 as well. Sociedad have 22, Atleti have 21. Last season through 11 games, Barcelona had 24 points. So a little a little worse, but not significantly worse than Atleti, uh, Alaves uh, had 20, Sevilla 19, Espanol 18, Real Madrid 17. So Barcelona more or less where they were at the point last season in which they ended up going on to win the title. Real Madrid started last season obviously in horrific form, had to bring in a new manager, then had to bring in another new 
manager who was an old manager, so that's confusing. But they right now are five points ahead of where they were last season. So maybe these are two managers who have some question marks around them still, but we end up seeing uh, finish out the season at the very least. Yeah, maybe so. I, I suspect Valverde will probably finish out the season because of the his relationship with the board. It seems a lot of fans think he's going to stay despite the shortcomings. And that's surprising about those numbers about last season. I didn't realize that. That's uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. But what I am very proud of myself for, if I may brag for a second, is that in my yeah. Yahoo Sports fixture forecast betting piece last week, I backed Levante to win this game against Barcelona. Um, the last few games between these two sides, Barcelona have convincingly won, but I just there's something about this match I thought was a, a banana skin for them because you remember early back in the season Levante nearly came back at the Bernabe- uh, at the Bernabeu when the, they were three uh, 0 down to Madrid they got it to three two they nearly got a got a point out of that one they coming into they came into this game with a big win over Real Sociedad who are doing very well this season and they have Levante pulled off a couple of good wins at home against Barcelona in recent seasons. Most recently, I think, was when they got that bonkers 5-4 victory at the end of the 2017-18 season, um, which stopped Barca going undefeated the whole season. So I'm uh, pleased that I picked that one out as a, as a banana skin because it definitely was for Valverde's side. But there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. When you yeah. looked at what was happening on the pitch, I mean, there's, there is this over-reliance on Messi and he he could have gotten another goal. He had one disallowed because Griezmann crept offside. Griezmann, the furthest forward he got in this game because he seemed to be playing very deep in this one. Messi also very deep here. It seems like the pressing game isn't really happening for them. The, the, there's some weird stuff going on with fullbacks and, you know, not, not uh, and players being out of position. They've added to this midfield, got, you know, they've made it younger and brought in, you know, De Jong and Artur and, you know, these nice, these great players, but, that midfield's not any better. And I think from from what I can see, players and the board seem happy with Valverde because he's not he's not asking them to jump through fire for him. So as long as they don't yeah. put too much pressure on him, he's fine basically. But I mean and they are top of the league at the moment, let's not forget that. But this team definitely has a lot of shortcomings. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. My, my small dog might disagree. I'm recording from home today. Uh, she, uh, barked. I don't know if that was audible, but she did not appreciate you talking about how the players have not performed. So maybe she's got some closet Barcelona inclinations. Um, but to, to the point about players not performing, I think sometimes, like you can look to, maybe you shouldn't, but sometimes I do look to newspapers and, uh, different outlets for the narrative from the weekend. And in this case with Barcelona, it was sort of spread that there were some people saying like, oh, Valverde just doesn't have it. There were other ones saying like, yeah, this is just kind of what happens in a season and Levante have been a good performer. So we shouldn't be too surprised. Then there was Valverde should have played Dembele. Then there was, well, Dembele hasn't justified being included. I've seen articles about how like Antoine Griezmann hasn't necessarily proven himself better than Coutinho and about how, he's not being utilized properly uh that's the counter argument to that one there's arguments about the youth players that have come through not performing well so it just seems like there are lots of different criticisms of barcelona mm. not necessarily specifically of ernesto valverde he himself said you've got to look to the manager when results don't go the right way so maybe he's okay with a little bit of that criticism but it definitely seems like there are some issues for barcelona to still figure out that said being in roughly the same position as they were last year top of the table only two points different than what they had uh, at, through 11 games when they went on to 
to win the title. Uh, Atleti, I would say, were the big ones that have fallen off, even though I believe uh, they have one point better than they did last season. Yeah. But they find themselves in fourth place instead of second. Yeah, they can't stop drawing is their issue. And speaking of Madrid teams drawing, Real Madrid mm-hmm. drawing with Batiste at home. Uh, Batiste, who have the worst defense in the league. Uh, Real yeah. Madrid having 22 shots on goal in this one. Hazard had, had one disallowed, uh, chalked off uh, for an offside. But... Are Real Madrid the most inconsistent team in Europe? That's my question to you, because it seems like they're so up and down. They can be so unpredictable, particularly at home. Uh, I think they've had some questionable results against Levante, as I mentioned, which they did win that game, to be fair, but didn't play well. Valladolid mm. and Club Bruges, they had some, some, some not very good performances going on here. It seems like they're just so unpredictable and inconsistent, this team. I don't think I'm like breaking any new ground when I say some of the things I'm about to say, but I, I absolutely agree. Yes, because from top to bottom, you've got, we're going to bring in, you know, 10 new players. We're going to spend a billion dollars. Zidane has all of these players he wants. And then they sign Hazard. They sign a few other players, but they definitely don't put themselves in as strong of a position. So you've got the inconsistency there. Then it's Zidane coming back. He wins three Champions Leagues in a row. He's going to figure it all out. He is the savior simultaneously. Well, maybe he was lucky and maybe he relied on Ronaldo and maybe he doesn't quite have it this time around. And then the players themselves, Aiden Hazard comes in for all the money and sometimes looks unplayable, sometimes looks, uh, very much playable, very much easily <laughs> defendable. And you've got like holdovers, Kareem Benzema, who can still score, but then he has off days, which maybe speaks to over-reliance upon him. Gareth Bale is suddenly very important. Then he's not important. Then he's key. Then he's playing golf. Now he wants to leave. Now he wants to stay. And there's so many kind of up and down stories about this team that, yes, I think that lends itself to a lot of inconsistency and a lot of just kind of confusion when it comes to the narrative of Madrid for this season. That said, still in second place, uh, level on points with Barcelona, so they probably won't be too th- or too upset uh, by how things are. But you would expect them to sort of look to retool in January, and I like I still don't know what ends up happening with Gareth Bale. I kind of don't want to put you in this on the spot of asking like what makes sense because I've asked this to plenty of people, and the answer is nothing really because no one's going to want to pay his wages. He's not at the level where justifying paying what they're going to have to pay to get him in makes sense. So I really don't know how that ends up, but I do think that we continue to see more inconsistency from Madrid until they're able to strengthen and find a bit more depth in January or maybe next summer. Yeah, I, I don't know what happens with Bell. I know that the deal they're offering with 70 million plus Bell for Sterling doesn't seem like fantastic value for Manchester City. Not so I much. don't think they're desperate to take that deal. Uh, But I do find it amusing that he's paid so much to just play golf at the moment. That's wonderful. Yes. I I do think that uh, we'll probably see a lot of links between Madrid and Kylian Mbappe. (laughs) Yes, golf links. Golf links for Gareth Bale, uh, transfer links when it comes to Mbappe and Real Madrid. PSG do lose on the weekend. Mm. uh, 2-1 to loss away to Dijon, which I'm sure is not how I'm supposed to pronounce that one, but whatever. Uh, PSG, that said, still... uh, Top of the table, not surprisingly, seven points clear, not surprisingly, plus 19 goal difference. Uh, all of that makes sense to me. And in a weekend of, like, does this mean the manager is going to be fired? Why aren't they performing better? This one, uh, from everything I saw, did seem like a just sort of fluke result that occasionally happens from time to time. I guess has happened three times this season. PSG hit the woodwork several times. Uh, if Mauro Icardi is a little bit better in his finishing, I think they uh, they end up drawing at the very least, if not winning. 
shooting. Uh, he has a header go off the post. He has a bicycle late that goes wide. Lots of shots that either hit the post or are right at the goalkeeper that could have been better. And this, to me, was more of a just sort of like weird result in the rain. It goes back to my old Scottish coach's line of like, Crap, uh, crap field, crap conditions, crap results. That's about how I'm going to justify this one. Maybe so. Maybe, maybe that's just a case of them being a bit unmotivated as well. You know, that, that big be. Marseille win, they're doing pretty well in the Champions League. It's Friday night. They're not in Paris. They're in some place that sounds like mustard. You know, maybe they just weren't <laughs> feeling up for it for, the, for this one. But we'll say another, another good goal for uh, uh, Kylian Mbappe. Another yep. assist for Angel Di Maria, who was so close to the uh, Paris scrap heap and is now very, very much proving his worth. That's good. Yeah, to see. right. Um, and and uh, and uh, another case of Icardi uh, getting getting the uh, pick over Cavani, but not taking his chances. As you say, had had several mm. opportunities to uh, get Paris back into this one, which he didn't take. He did, and yet with all of that being the case, it's just always fun to watch PSG because there's maybe always the threat that they're going to melt down and implode, but also because Angel Di Maria has been excellent. You're absolutely right there, but just killing Mbappe, he's just so much fun. Mm. Like I'm not again not breaking new ground, but the goal he scores, the acceleration he has, but then the tight control and the ability to just definitely finish. It's like a chip with the outside of his foot. All of those. Like things seem like they stand in opposition to each other of you shouldn't be able to be as fast as he is and yet stop on a dime and control the ball as well as he does but then still be capable of blasting in a finish. Uh, He really is one of my favorite players to watch. Um, And if he stays at PSG, then I think he'll continue to be very exciting and score a bunch of goals. If he goes elsewhere, I hope he remains as productive and I hope uh, wherever he goes, teams find a way to utilize him properly. Yeah, just imagine how funny it'd be if he wasn't in a Farmers League playing mustard teams. Imagine if if he went to Real Madrid and um, got worn down by them. Wonderful. Well, I I would be okay with him moving to Madrid and being worn down. I would not be okay with him moving to Serie A in Italy because now we've reached the point of the show, which seems to have become the unfortunate tradition in which we have to talk about racism in Serie A. Uh, The big big headline this weekend, there was some uh, like talk about uh, Roma fans abusing Napoli fans, uh, but the big one would be Hellas Verona 2, Brescia 1, Mario Balotelli uh, racially abused, uh, tried to leave the pitch, was uh, persuaded by his teammates to stay on the field. He ends up scoring the consolation goal, which I've seen some outlets spin as like, Balotelli comes back on and gets his revenge. But when you're like racially abused and your teammates don't walk off with you and the other team sort of yells at you for your actions and then you end up losing, I don't know how much revenge that really was. Uh, and I, I wish he had been able to score a hat trick and, and find a way uh, to like get the result and really show uh, the Verona fans. But really, I wish his teammates had just walked off with him and that had been that. Yeah, that's very unpleasant scenes here. You know, obviously... Balotelli getting booked for unsportsmanlike behavior when he boots the ball into the crowd and there's a five minute delay when there's a stadium mm-hmm. announcement telling the uh, Hellas Verona fans to stop being so abhorrent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most abhorrent thing yep. about this whole situation is has to be the reaction of the manager, the club, the uh, even the local council officials that's come mm-hmm. into this all basically denying. Oh yeah, didn't... The- the local council officials wanted to like file a complaint against Balotelli for disparaging the city. That's right. right. Something so, like that. Um, their quote from four local councillors: uh, "The mayor should take legal action against Balotelli and all those who attack Verona by unjustly defaming it." And um, mm. if I might read you a quote from the Hellas uh, Verona yeah. Ultras leader. He's been banned, to the credit of the club, he's been banned by them until 2030 over racist comments. His, his quote he's given out now is, Balotelli is Italian because he has Italian citizenship, but he can never be completely 
Italian. The chants came from only four people who were only heard by the people who recorded the video. Balotelli only heard it in his own head. Hmm. We also have a Negro in our team who scored yesterday and all of the Verona fans applauded him. So there's some wild contradictions going on in that statement in itself. And obviously it's pretty abhorrent. But this whole thing of just denying this behavior when it's mm-hmm. quite clearly happening. It's, it, it feels a bit like the certain presidential administrations who are saying, you know, oh, de- denying things that we, yep. we've heard the transcripts. We, we know we can hear with our own ears. We know what's happened. Don't deny yep. these things. Try and be a bit more compassionate about what's going on here. It's just, oh, the, 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 the reaction has been as if not more disappointing yep. than the incident itself. Yeah, and that extends to Verona's manager, Ivan Juric, or Juric, who basically gave my least favorite type of statement. Uh, he came out in the post-match press conference and said, first of all, I want to say that in my opinion, the lowest point a human being can reach is when you are racist. And that was the first part of it. And I was like, oh, he's actually going to say, like, this is not acceptable. This needs to be dealt with. And then he followed it up with, but I think that today, absolutely nothing happened. Nothing. I spoke to the fourth official as well, and he confirmed there was no racism at all. He later added, there was loud whistling and mockery, but no racist chant. There was nothing. Uh, club president Maurizio Setti uh, agreed, saying that the fans were being sarcastic, but not racist. And this goes back to the idea that... Like in Italy, amongst certain people, amongst certain fans, that you kind of do whatever you have to do to get under the skin of an opponent, but it's all men in sort of like good fun and head games and not like racist. Uh, Juric himself, I think, said like, I'm used to being called like a gypsy and, and I deal with it. And I find that so, so frustrating to the point of making me furious that like... That's like saying like, well, I get racially abused and I don't care. So it's fine. Like, I don't understand any part of that logic at all. And I don't understand like the, uh, the, the ultras leader you quoted saying like, oh yeah, well, some people did it, but, uh, he didn't hear it. It was all in his head. It's like, no, he clearly hears it. You can see from the video that was posted that he, uh, posted, uh, it was a fan, fan film thing that you could hear the, the, uh, the monkey chants happening. And that's precisely when he stops and boots the ball into the stands. And then Verona fans get offended by that or Verona players get offended by that. But like to then say, well, it happened, but it was really quiet and there's no way he heard it when he clearly heard it and reacted to it. Just these stories don't make sense they they don't connect i don't fully understand why there's this hesitation to really respond to it and just say like yes this needs to change because i guess i am very much of the opinion that like i i i am white and like i i'm not trying to say like i get it or by any means but i guess my feeling is like if a person tells me something is racist i don't have the experience to say well no it's not it's this like I, I, I do feel that if a person says this is racist, then it's racist if, if that's how it's internalized. And I'm not trying to then argue with them about like, well, well, semantics and it's cultural and we're just trying to frustrate that. I just do not understand this. Uh, I guess the only like saving grace is that at least Hellas Verona aren't going to make up for it by wearing blackface. So there's that. Um, unlike certain other organizations. Yes, uh, this has been doing the rounds on Twitter. Uh, my friend Jordan sent me this one. Uh, Zach Lowy at uh, Z-A-C-H-L-O-W-Y is a good uh, Twitter account to follow. He 
uh, retweeted this story and then translated some of it. But essentially, during a youth game in Italy on Saturday, uh, the mother of an opposing player racially abused a 10-year-old. Uh, I will not say what she said. Uh, but then there were other chants. It was, I think, the, the match finished. Then there were complaints filed. Uh, and here's the damning one. In response, both teams will take a symbolic gesture against racism next Saturday by painting their faces black. So essentially to show that no one is racist and everybody uh, wants to be equal and friendly, they're going to go blackface for that game. I, I don't. I don't understand, Ryan. If if your jaw didn't hit the floor at a mother of an opposing player racially abused mm-hmm. a ten year old, then you, your jaw was firmly on the floor by the end of that tweet. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, absolutely unbelievable stuff. It's it's kind of reminiscent. There was a, a, many years ago um, in the Spanish Grand Prix in Formula One, Lewis Hamilton. There was there was. Um, he he was being cheered by fans wearing blackface and they were um you know claiming it was in support of him but obviously not very appreciated i suppose i suppose there might be some cultural differences and some some differences into how that mm-hmm. kind of thing is viewed and i mean we do have i mean in spain for example they have the three kings day where blackface is still used in their parades and there's there is image there's an image on on, on google images of sergio ramos in blackface if you google it mm-hmm. um so, so there maybe there is a cultural yeah. difference we should appreciate here but i'm not, not for one second saying we should condone it at all no and and like I, I think that's like we've had people get frustrated with uh, us on the show for, uh, I guess, by their accusations, like overly focusing on racism in Serie A when there are racist incidents with uh, Premier League fans, mm. when it happens in the Netherlands, it happens in Germany occasionally, it happens all over the world. And that is true, that there are racists all over the world. And, and there will be a small minority uh, of people who may say something or chant something and like that happens and should be discussed and should be ruled out. But the systematic way that these complaints and these issues are dismissed and not dealt with and covered up or sort of explained away as like, oh, it's just fans being fans seems very particular to Italy and seems very consistently occurring in Italy. And that is why I, I like I choose to focus on it on this show and why we choose to talk about it, because it feels very much uh, like there's this idea of, look, this is how it's done in Italy and that's just how it's done. And fine, but if you're trying to be this global league and this global brand and you want people to pay attention to it and root for your teams and care about your teams, to not take any action or to, I guess, uh, what Verona have been hit with a partial stadium ban, yeah. uh, but their owner, their manager, their council are all rejecting it and denying it. I, I just don't understand how you can see it from top to bottom so systematically and yet dismiss it as like, well, it happens everywhere, so it's not a big deal. I think... That's what bothers me a little bit. I think these sort of partial stadium bands and stadium bands are a bit feckless. I mean, it's, it seems like Lazio and Roma, they're always having that kind of thing. It doesn't seem to affect mm-hmm. things. It doesn't change things culturally. I think you have to deliver the harshest pun- punishments possible for things like this. And I think that can only be deducting points. I think it can be making making players miss games or you know or making fans. Why, why not ban these fans for lifetime? Give them lifetime bans. Ban their children. Ban their grandchildren. Just you know, make a really hard point on this. I'm serious because uh, it's that kind of you, you got to make an example out of this kind of thing. And I think the only way you really affect change is by affecting change to the team itself, and you deduct points. That's I think that's that's got to be the next natural step in trying to uh, uh, tackle this kind of thing. The idea of like banning grandchildren initially does make me like chuckle, but then I I also kind of get it because it's like if you if you are banned not for your action but because the actions of your ancestors, 
it does at least make you think. And maybe there's like you can take a a course and you can learn about it and then you can be reinstated. Like mm. we have those rules, not for racism, but like in our local adult league here, it's like if you accrue too many disciplinary points, you have to take a refereeing course and you have to kind of make sure you're educated before you can be reinstated. Right. I don't see why that shouldn't be the case elsewhere, that if you have these actions, if your fans consistently act this way, there has to be more punishment than, hey, we've issued a stadium announcement about, hey, please stop it. Otherwise, we're going to uh, you know, temporarily postpone or maybe postpone this game entirely, but we'll probably play it again. Or maybe some of you won't be allowed back in, but it doesn't really solve anything. And I think it starts with education. It starts yeah. with learning and it starts with experiencing other cultures because, like, I'll be honest, and this is going to make me really uncomfortable to talk about, but, like, uh, I live in Virginia. Uh, our governor and I believe our lieutenant governor, or maybe it was our attorney general, either way, have both admitted to wearing blackface in, in college. And it was very frustrating because Virginia is a purple state. Uh, I, I tend to vote Democrat, I'll be honest. And like that really upset me. And and it upset me more because I like the, my friend Jordan, who sent me this, uh, this story from Italy, he's black. And I talked to him about it because like, for me, I don't necessarily um, automatically get the historical significance of blackface and why it is so offensive Mm. but if you talk to a person from a different culture who has those different experiences you learn and that's exactly what happened with me i'm not trying to be self-promotional here but it just it helps me understand better how this impacts an like an entire culture an entire group of people and if you don't have that understanding then you're never going to get why your actions need to be changed and why there need to be ramifications instead you're just going to keep explaining it away as oh a joke's a joke you all are just too serious yeah definitely and yeah as we say this isn't just a problem in italy by any means uh, many other leagues mm. and countries are guilty of this and we need to affect some serious change and i think serious punishments are the way ahead I agree. And I appreciate you, Ryan, for listening to my rant and then uh, responding to it when I just sort of finish with like, and I'm really mad. And you're like, uh, yeah, I am mad too. So so <laughs> thank you for allowing me to, I don't know, get mad for a moment. And thank you for talking with me about all of the action from this weekend that we were able to talk about. Obviously, we didn't talk about every game. We didn't talk about every big game, uh, every big result. But we talked about the ones that uh, basically I was able to catch up on because I was traveling and I didn't send Ryan a running order until about two hours before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you, Tay-Tay, and I appreciate you talking to me through presumably a jet lag haze of some sort. Maybe this was all a dream. Maybe this never happened. Ooh. I really hope that's not the case. I did genuinely have a dream earlier today when I woke up that I had to record another show and I like hadn't done the research and I woke up thinking, oh, I've got to read about the USU 17s. And I was all set to do that and I remembered, oh, no, no, that's not happening. And then I, my eyes like, like shot open with like, oh, no, I still have to do the weekend review. And then that was when I hopped out of bed to, to get to work. There you go. Always the way. <laughs> All right. So, Ryan, uh, next week, hopefully I'll, I'll give you a bit more time to prepare. Uh, but until then, I'd just like to say one more time, thank you for taking all the time to talk with me about all these games. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.